Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietti. Just to let everyone know on the Paracast, we get the best possible guests. Well, we try. We don't always get them, but well, we get we do most of the really good ones, like the one we have this evening. I'm very excited about having Dr. Bruce McAbee on. He is probably the closest thing that I have found to an absolutely unimpeachable character in the UFO world. He has been researching the field for, God, 30, 40 years now. He is a physicist. He does work for the U.S. government. He is the preeminent image processing expert when it comes to looking at UFO photographs, which, of course, is of huge interest to me, Gene. And uh, he he has a a list of credentials a mile long. This guy is the real deal. And, And I have to say, of all the guests we've had on, this is probably the one I'm the most excited about. And he also plays piano. Really, really well. There are some MP3s of his stuff floating around, and he is—he's a great musician. So I—I I don't know. Maybe he won't be a good interview. Who knows? I'm—I'm I'm really hoping it will be. I have a lot of questions for Doctor Mackey. Well, you know what we should do? What? Instead of going through a long preamble, because some people do not like our long preambles to show. No one likes our preambles, Gene. No one. Okay. I don't like him either. Oh, okay. <laughs> Coming up next on the Powercast, Doctor Bruce Mackey. We're not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at one eight 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 ufo maga or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295, or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. 
Bruce, you've been involved in this field for longer than many of our listeners have been alive. I'm wondering, what is it that That's prompted scary. you? Well, it's true, though. <laughs> it's true. Uh, it's yeah, very wow. scary. How did you get involved in this, Bruce? What What is it that brought you to this uh, strange field of endeavor? The main impetus, I guess, was back in the uh, middle, latter half of the 60s with the uh, flap of sightings in 65 and 66, and then the condom study starting in 67 and 68 and so on. When I was going to American University in Washington, D.C., all this stuff was in the press. And uh, so I became aware of it and read some books like UFO Serious Business by Frank Edwards and a couple of them by the Afro people and so on. And uh, that's sort of how I became active in it. Many years, ten years before that, in high school, I had read um, Ruppelt's, Captain Edward J. Ruppelt's uh, book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. He was the... Uh, first director of Project Blue Book, and he wrote his book based on actual files of the Air Force. So I don't, cannot recall, you know, what my impression as a high school student was of the book, except there wasn't anything I could do about it. When I reread the book 10 years later, I realized that essentially Ruppel was, uh, by the end of the book, he was like sitting on the fence and would take a feather to knock him off into the, uh, the extraterrestrial side. So anyway, a combination of reading books, and then, and then I guess... Um, the thing that really made the difference was uh, when I was at American University and two guys from the National Investigating Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which was the largest civilian UFO group at the time. Their headquarters was in Washington, D.C. Two of the guys, I think it was Dick Hall and Gordon Lohr or maybe Don Berliner, who came and talked at American University in the fall of 68, I think, or something. And um, besides talking, I guess, about UFOs in general and so on, I don't remember their talk. But the thing that sticks in my mind was they said, oh, by the way, we need volunteer help at the main office. So, I don't know, a month or two months later, I decided, well, maybe I'd check this out. After all, NICAP was in all the main, all of the books that were written about UFOs talked about NICAP, or most of them did anyway, as being a uh, investigating organization. So... It was internationally known, so and it was, its headquarters was in Washington, D.C., not far from DuPont Circle, which is an area I was familiar with at the time. And so I figured, well, I'll go down there and uh, see what this is all about. I figured that they had these big files, supposedly, of UFO sightings, and if there was any truth to the matter, it would be in the files. So I went there expecting to see a big office with lots of secretaries and scientists running around and test equipment and all sorts of great stuff. Boy... Was I in for a shock? <laughs> uh, I was um, there too at one a couple of times. You were there too. Huh? Yes, I was not the same time you were. I was the one that Dick Hall threw out of the office. Oh well, Dick Hall had thrown himself out of the office by the time I got there. <laughs> he was no longer. <laughs> he was no longer there. Uh, I guess it might have been '69. I'm not sure, but I do know. I went down to Dupont Circle, and as I said, expecting to see this, you know, nice big office and so on. I said I come to a sort of a semi-broken-down row house, and then a uh, stairway going up a uh, hallway with a, uh, a light up at the top and a door that opened up into uh, a small suite of rooms, basically somebody's ho- what had been somebody's house or mm-hmm. living quarters, I guess, at some time. And uh, there were books and stuff, papers all over the place, uh, but no living person other than uh, Isabel Davis, who was a secretary at the time, an elderly lady who was 
very smart and managed to hold the whole thing together by herself, I guess. Oh, anyway, no, uh, I remember her. She was with CSI of New York, not referring to the crime scene investigation, right. but civilian saucer intelligence. So that's right. And that was back in the uh, early 50s that that started up. And uh, the CSI files actually ended up in the NICAP files. Anyway... There were books and papers all over the place, and file and the filing cabinets. The, the family jewels of NICAP were there. But uh, Donald Kehoe, his desk was there, piled up high with all sorts of stuff. But he hadn't been there for I don't know days, weeks, months, whatever. And as I said, nobody nobody else was there, and I didn't know any of the people anyway. But uh, I told Isabel that I was working for a PhD at American University, and that I had read some books and so on. And I don't know the second or third time I showed up there. And by the way, most of the work was things like opening letters and answering them. And she wanted me to write a single, write something that she could use as a special typewriter with small type to type up a single page, what we would now call frequently asked questions, FAQ, mm-hmm. and um, that she could mail out to people who would write letters saying, please send us, send me everything you have on UFOs, to which the proper response was, okay, send a truck. Because <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of stuff. But anyway, um, by joining or going down there and helping with NICAP, I got to know some of the people in the local area, the so-called local subcommittee. NICAP worked through subcommittees and throughout the United States and in other countries of uh, people who one way or another got some some sort of a training in the uh, investigation. And uh, I got to go on some UFO sighting investigations. The first one involved a report of green lights passing over a road called Tuckerman Lane, which is just west of Washington, D.C., just west of the belt, what's now the Beltway. And this lady reported these lights going over her while she was driving along the road and couldn't figure out what they were. So we went there and talked to her, took a ride in her car. Couldn't see any reason why there would be green lights passing over the road. She was a teacher, and her husband was an accountant, and uh, they were well-to-do people. Didn't seem to have any reason for hoaxing or anything like that. So I guess ultimately it ended up being the hung jury. I have noted that in the years since, there have been numerous reports of green lights passing over in, in the vicinity of Washington, D.C., and also other places in the world. So I guess it's not a total, it's not a unique phenomenon to that one report. Then we got other reports, including one out in Shenandoah Valley that I investigated over a period of a, of a, of a year or more, and uh, one that occurred in a little town called Passapatansee, Virginia, which is like one house. Uh, not far from where I'm working now, oddly, oddly enough. And the uh, point is that these cases turned out to be quite meaty, uh, yet you couldn't just pass them off as being the town drunks or people who were obviously looking for publicity or anything like that. I have been told by other people who got interested in the subject that they would start doing case investigations and find nothing but trivial events, people misidentifying Venus or birds or stars or or whatever, and that would turn them off and they would go away and do something else. I guess in that sense I was fortunate that uh, the first cases that I came up against turned out to be essentially unexplainable, unless you assumed that the witnesses went crazy temporarily and then reverted to normalcy afterwards, something like that. But anyway, that's basically how I got into it. It seems like this is not the kind of thing that people would go out of their way, certainly, to get attached to in terms of people reporting ufo sightings for notoriety or fame is this something that you've seen happen over the years i mean it it seems to me like there is definitely a negative stigma attached to 
the whole phenomenon. I mean, do people really want to be associated with this in your experience? Well, there certainly are people. There were the sightings themselves that started primarily in 1947 and started being reported by people who, uh, let's say, the whole whole world was naive about the situation and the people would look up and see something strange and report it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't for several years that this big reaction set in that you must be stupid or something like that to report such a thing. By the time the early 50s occurred, that reaction had set in, and uh, you had, for example, pilots saying that they would never make reports. Uh, Kenneth Arnold said in 1947 that he, uh, or sometime in the late 40s, that uh, if he saw a barn flying by, he wouldn't tell anybody. Anyway, in spite of that, you know, you had the contactees who uh, uh, reported having direct contact with uh, aliens and craft that would come and greet them and take them on trips to uh, various places in the universe and Moon and Mars and Jupiter and well, Venus was supposedly a nice place to visit and all that sort of stuff. But I wouldn't want to live there. Would get up and talk happily <laughs> about their adventures. Hmm? Well, you know, but, Venus certainly was, you know, they, when they said they had a hot time in Venus, they must have been asking us to take it literally. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting too for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. Hey, all you have to do is go to our website, theparacast.com, and scroll down a little bit. You'll see a Host I Can banner. That's a Host I Can banner at theparacast.com. Click on that banner and you'll learn more about Host I Can, where we host our sites. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're proud to be welcoming to the Paracast this week none other than Dr. Bruce Maccabee. And he, of course, is known as a photographic expert, has a wide experience in the UFO field. But as I was saying, when they specify having a hot time on Venus, maybe you know we should have listened more carefully to what they said. You know? Yeah, well, it definitely would have been a hot time. And, and all hmm. the gardens on the backside of the moon uh, apparently died between the time that Adamski was there and um, our own rockets <laughs> ended up going around the moon in the uh, early 60s. Now, you just brought up something interesting, which is George Adamski and the supposed photographic and um, video, or I should say film evidence he offered. I look at that footage now and I look at those stills, and quite frankly, they are so far less than convincing in any way. But this, this brings me right to a, an important question, Bruce which is visual sophistication. Uh, certainly in the 50s, we didn't have a population that had 
been exposed to as many high-tech special effects as they are now, yet so much of the photographic evidence that we see, certainly to a trained eye, is clearly ridiculous. What are your thoughts about that? Do you think that people are visually more sophisticated than they were, but are just in denial? Well, at the present time, the word is getting around, has been over the last 10 years, that all sorts of things can be done with uh, programs like Photoshop. Mm -hmm. Now, you can take a real photograph, scan it, and change it by taking people out, putting people in, taking objects in and out, and all these things, and it's getting to the point where you have to be really sophisticated to determine whether something is a hoax or not. Right. You're probably familiar with the recent so-called Chad photos that have been... Uh, uh, <laughs> that's a ring of... It looks like a ring with appendages sticking out the side. Yeah, with these like tendrils looks, on top. We've actually talked about them quite a bit on the Paracast, and uh, it's it's uh-huh. astounding to us that people find these to be credible. Well, my first initial reaction was when I read... It wasn't the photos themselves that really grabbed my attention right. in this case. It was the claim that, well, we saw this object and we took some pictures of it, but they weren't very good. So the next day we went back to get more pictures. Right. My friend actually had the guts to run underneath it and take a photograph looking straight up, mm-hmm. or almost straight up, which clearly showed that it was hollow in the center. And my initial reaction to that is, after all these years, is this the first guy to actually get that close to a flying saucer uh, that he can take such a clear picture of it. Mm-hmm. There have been thousands of pictures taken, I suppose, <laughs> and uh, in, in previous cases, you know, most of them, the photographs don't show much detail. Right. He'd have to. These people would have to be awfully convincing to convince me that they're the first people to get that close. And then, of course, there's things like this object is comparable in size to uh, the cross arm on a telephone pole that was uh, in, in one of the photographs. Uh, if you assume it was low, close to the telephone pole, when it was maybe eight feet in size or something like that, if it were a real object, but they couldn't hear any noise of it or whatever and thought maybe it was a lot farther away. Somebody supposed maybe it was a mile up, in which case it would be hundreds and hundreds of feet in diameter, and nobody else saw anything. You know, I don't know what they are claiming, if anything, in terms of how many people supposedly saw this. I'm not, I may probably am not up to date on uh, on the story as it exists today, but... Uh, a month ago, I guess, when these things sort of hit, hit the press, you might say, the initial thought was that this was all, or some of us anyway, thought this was probably on the level of Photoshop type of stuff. And, in fact, somebody did post a video of uh, something like this thing taking off, mm-hmm. I don't know, five or ten seconds worth of video you probably have right. seen on the net. Indeed. But now you compare that with something like back in um, the early 50s. Now, I was at the house of a lady whose name escapes me, but she was a good friend of Adamski. She lived in the D.C. area. She showed me some movies that she had bought. This probably was in the 1970s. A Mrs. John, I believe? No, I, I can't think of her name. Okay. I'm trying to go back. She, to that she lived era. north of Washington, D.C., and uh, as I said, oh, Adamski, I think she claimed that Adamski was at her house when, when he took some of the pictures that he had. Hmm. At any rate, she showed a movie, which is a movie of a UFO, she claimed, that she had bought for 10 bucks from some people in West Virginia. And this movie showed somebody, the cameraman, standing. Uh, the camera shows the screen, the, the wire fence around an airport. And you see an airplane land, uh, I don't know, maybe 100, 150 feet away from the camera. And then comes swinging into the field of view, this, quote, UFO, 
And it's clearly on a string. It swings back and forth and so on. And she's saying, see, there it is. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm saying to myself, mm. how gullible do you have to be? Right. right. Oh, <laughs> you know, except, something, except something like this, because obviously the person had tried to connect it up with the, the UFO, I guess, following the airplane, but the UFO was clearly on the camera side of the fence. It wasn't on the other side of the fence. So it clearly was a small object, and it was swinging back and forth like on a pendulum. Right. Now, a much more sophisticated hoax, if it were a hoax, would be something like the, the Trent case, where you can't see any obvious way uh, that, that it was hoaxed. Of course, I don't believe that it was hoaxed. That's the uh, famous McMinnville photos from uh, May of 1950 that probably have been published as much as or more than any other photos in the uh, whole history of the subject, turning up in almost every book that had pictures. And you could say, well, the Trent's probably made really made out from that. fact of the matter is they never got paid for those pictures. The negatives were lost to them. Once they took the photos and gave the negatives to the uh, newspaper people, they were lost until uh, they turned up when Dr. William Hartman worked with them for the condom study in 1968. And then he uh, sent them back to the photo archive, and um, Trent's again didn't have them. Then uh, in 1971 or 72, the editor, Philip Bladeen, the editor of the Pellet Paper, who, that published those photos originally in June of 1950, he was still the editor of the paper. He wrote to the photo archives and said they, well, these photos belong to the Trents. They ought to be returned to the Trents. Well, he got the negatives, but he never returned them to the Trents. <laughs> I, he, he let me borrow them in 1974 or 75. I called him up to see if he, if, he, if by any chance he knew where the negatives were, because I had decided to try to uh, analyze the Trent case. And he said, sure, they're right here on my desk. So I was going to borrow them for a few weeks, actually held on to them until a few years ago. But the point is, uh, you know, the Trents took these pictures, they had their story, uh, they stuck with it. They died in 1995 and 96. They stuck with their story, never changed it. They might have made a few dollars on it because... In the 1980s, there were some people, some organizations, including the National Geographic, that wanted to use the negatives. And I said, well, these belong to the Trents, so you should pay the Trents for them. I think I actually managed to get the Trents maybe 100 or $200 for their pictures. Hmm. But that was in the 1980s. That was hey. long after the pictures had been taken. And there's no evidence that they would have even thought of a hoax. If they, uh, but if they had thought of a hoax... They certainly did a, uh, made a mess of it and caused themselves a lot of harassment in the process. Fake Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fake Magazine, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com that's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com what are you waiting for your fate awaits we want to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at 
theparacast.com. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Dr. Bruce Maccabee joins us. David, you're ready with a question or a comment? Well, actually, yeah, I wanted to comment upon those infamous Chad photos, Bruce. Um, there were either mm-hmm. three or four subsequent sets of photos that came out, each with a less believable backstory. And um, every set of photos that came out, the, uh, the object got more complexity added to it. The very first set of photos that appeared on the Coast to Coast site uh, impressed me as being obviously computer graphic uh, in nature in terms of uh, the ship being 3D modeled and composited into a photographic plate. There were some things that really jumped out to me, such as what appeared to be the relative lack of atmospheric density. If this thing was high up in the air, you would expect to, of course, see a certain amount of hazing or atmospheric density. Uh, which was not present. And the shot that you uh, cited specifically of the underside of the thing, which showed um, what looked like a uh, sort of a mashup between Klingon and Star Wars type typography (laughs) on the bottom of it, which was another thing that had never, ever, to my knowledge, been reported in a even semi-credible UFO sighting that they would show up on this thing all of a sudden made no sense. What you pointed out, though, the, the backstories on all of these things were, were ridiculous. And as, as a follow-up note, the person, Chad, who had created a Flickr account with these things, that Flickr account is now gone. There has been no corroboration of the sourcing of these images, which, to me, is a clear indication that this was a CG fabrication. And this brings me back to the issue of visual sophistication, because on the web, a lot of the chatter around these had people very um, impressed by the modeling quality and the rendering quality of these images. Our listeners know that I worked very briefly at Industrial Light and Magic in the early 90s and have worked on visual special effects since then for a variety of other films. To my trained eye, these images were, were decent, but certainly they weren't astounding in terms of either the quality of the compositing, the complexity of the modeling. They didn't really stand out to me, which, which again leads me to believe that perhaps people are not as visually sophisticated as we would hope they would be in the era of Photoshop. And just one other note, Photoshop, as it turns out, was not the first piece of software that was available at the consumer level to do this kind of work. Uh, there is software that predates Photoshop by five, about five years that allowed people to do this kind of photographic retouching. There's a, there's a whole history of this software. Photoshop was the first one to be commercially successful and to have the product name actually morph into, eventually, a verb. Now we, we, we refer to this as Photoshopping images. But um, certainly uh, that technology was around before the early 90s when, when Photoshop was released. Probably based on Amiga computers. Actually, as it turns out, the very first piece of software that was really adept at this was the forerunner of a product called Image Studio, something called The Realist, which actually made its debut on the Macintosh black and white computer. Um, and then there was a thing called Image Studio, which was marketed by Letraset in, I think, 86, 87. That was the, essentially what became Color Studio, and that's one of the reasons that Photoshop exists. It was Adobe's answer to Letraset. I'm kind of the institutional memory of the history of this software, so I know where all the skeletons are buried there. But going back before that, Bruce, I know you've done some research into um, some images that I've analyzed, the Billy Meyer stuff, which to me is an indication that people were doing this photographically before there were things like Photoshop. Well, it certainly was is possible. I mean, pre-Photoshop was different 
skills necessary. Right. Uh, double exposures, um, f- manipulations in a photo lab where you would take a negative and imprint one or more images on it or something like that. I mean, we know that the, the Russians were excellent at airbrushing people out of uh, <laughs> photos, for example, of uh, political scenes where it would be a group of people standing and if a, if a particular person was in favor, was in, was in the favor, was uh, in favorable standing with the uh, uh, people in charge, that person's picture would appear in the paper or appear in the photograph. And if he wasn't in good standing, his picture would somehow disappear. When I worked on the McMinnville case, uh, which I spent several years on, you know, and that's two photographs. Uh, I actually got a hold of the original negative, so I didn't have to worry about whether or not there had been any uh, clever techniques used between the original negatives and some sort of a final print. But I realized then a photo a UFO does not make. It would be harder to fake a movie, probably even harder than that to fake a uh, video complete with sound. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, all these things can be done, as uh, Hollywood man has managed to prove over the last 50 or 60 years. Sure. Uh, you know, the day the Earth stood still looks pretty convincing. Fantastic <laughs> stuff. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Areas, yeah. The original War of the Worlds and stuff like that looked like there really were triangular objects with cobra head type shaped uh, infrared beams coming, uh, you know, flying around, destroying uh, civilization. But the average person, now this, where, where the crunch comes in is, I could say that almost any photo, video, whatever, could be hoaxed, given enough time, effort, economic capability, and knowledge to do it, and of course the will to do it. Mm-hmm. So you end up asking yourself, are the, is the, and you need the backstory. One problem with this Chad photos was I don't think anybody ever got interviewed. I don't know if they ever know who actually posted all that stuff. But uh, you've got to be able to get a hold of the person who is responsible for the pictures. And then you have to be able to uh, sort of rake them over the coals in terms of their life history to find out what they know. You probably, no doubt you recall the Gulf Breeze situation in 1987 through 88, 89, so on. Big criticisms that Ed Walters came up against for taking so many pictures. In spite of the fact there were a dozen other people in the area who claimed they saw exactly the same thing. He was accused of of faking the whole thing. And when I visited him, I one of the things I looked for was any evidence that he would know how to take a full Polaroid and start faking photographs. I learned a lot from this stuff, by the way. I learned a lot from analyzing the photos, the Trent photos, learned a lot from analyzing other photo cases in the Nugmanville and the, uh, the, the Gulf Breeze case. Uh, the many sightings in Gulf Breeze, the photos that Ed took, every one of them had to be analyzed. How could this be faked? if you were going to do it. And in each case, I came up with, well, it could be faked probably by somebody who knows what he's doing. And if this were Steven Spielberg saying, look, I took a photograph of a UFO, I'd say, forget it. But it wasn't. It was somebody who could uh, anal- who could manipulate a Polaroid camera, and that was about it. Several A year or so into his sightings period, he got himself a 35-millimeter camera and learned how to use it. But up to that point, he had no more than moderate interest in photography. He used his camera to take photos of the houses he was building and, you know, home scenes of photographs and so on. He had a crummy video camera as well, and he took some, uh, he actually got a, a UFO video in December of 1970, 1987, when there was a time when his family also saw the same object going around the back of his house. Uh, and the question then was, well, how do you fake this video? 
And uh, again, it would have required you know considerable effort to to fake this thing. We figured out how it could be done, but you'd have to have an accomplice. Um, in any case, if you analyze, take the Chad photos. If we knew that whoever was a source of that had had a computer and the capability and knowledge to use Photoshop or something like that, mm-hmm. then we could, uh, you know, say there's a pretty good chance that that's exactly what it was. Without being able to interview the witnesses, it's almost useless to try to analyze the photos themselves. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Dr. Bruce Maccabee, who is a photo expert and has investigated UFOs for a long time and I understand plays a great piano. <laughs> Definitely. A <Dude>. CD. <laughs> well, now we're going we're gonna to let you talk about that in just a little bit. There's one thing I want to mention, uh, Bruce, that people these days in the era of digital photography, a lot of people have forgotten what a Polaroid is. Um, when you have a Polaroid camera mm-hmm. and you took a snapshot Basically, this is where the film, uh, the, 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 the actual print comes out of the bottom of the camera and develops right there. There is no post-processing. There is no darkroom. So effectively, if you're going to fake or fabricate a, an image on a Polaroid photo, you have to do that conventionally. In other words, you have to set up the scene. There is no compositing involved. Essentially, you well, have to actually, fake. Yeah. It gets a little more complicated than that. The original Polaroid, starting with black and white and going to color, the idea was that the the film comes in two parts. One is the negative part that takes the picture, and the other is a a roll of uh, developer stuff. These two, the negative part would be in front of the lens or in back of the lens, however you want to look at it, uh, at the time that the shutter opens and closes, so you get a picture on the negative part. The uh, developer part is another roll of film attached to the negative roll. So you got a negative roll and you got a developer roll, and these two are attached together such that when you pull the film out of the camera after uh, taking a picture, the developer stuff was pressed against the negative. And then the chemicals in the developer stuff would make take this negative and turn it into a positive, a sort of a reversal project process in mm-hmm. photographic mm-hmm. terms. And then you would peel off the film. The resulting negative turned into a positive had the picture. And if you obeyed the rules of Polaroid photography and you take a single picture and then pull it out, lo and behold, you would get a single photograph. And, uh, you know, if you tried to hoax something that way, it would be you'd have to set up the scene and photograph it. Right. Well, it turns out that these old folk, old Polaroid cameras, the ones that you pulled out, could be used to take double exposures. How do you do hmm. that? Well, you just click the shutter twice before you pull the film out. There was nothing in there in the camera. In the early cameras, there was nothing that prevented you from putting, clicking the shutter 25 times before you pull the film out. Oh. So you could get a double exposure. And this is how, why Ed was accused of taking double exposure photographs 
with his camera. Now, he, his first photographs were taken on November 11th of 1987. Those were published, some of those were published in the uh, uh, local paper, and that attracted the interest of the local population and resulted in uh, oh, seven or eight other people coming forward saying that on the same day, November 11th, 1987, they also saw this object. Then over the next few weeks, Ed had further sightings and took further pictures, but didn't tell anybody until January when the MUFON investigator, local MUFON investigators finally sort of gained his confidence and he began to talk about the, the pictures that he was taking. Well, now up through February of 1988, he was using his Polaroid camera, except for one set of photos that was in a preloaded camera given him by, by MUFON, which I could go into, but uh, that was a stereo camera, which was proved to be interesting. But then in March of 1988, he bought himself a new camera, a so-called Model 600. Now, this Model 600 camera, it was also Polaroid, but it operated a different way. You've put in a film pack, and when you took the picture, you pressed the button, the film would automatically eject within a second, and then the, the, the developing would occur. Uh, I guess I should point out that in your old cameras, where you pull the roll out, you would take a picture, pull the roll a certain distance, which automatically clicked to a certain distance, and then a, sort of a click took place and you stopped. Then you would wait up to a minute, and then you would open the back of the camera and peel off the film, which was now a positive. So the point is the development took place inside the camera. Remember that? Mm -hmm. But with the Model 600, the development takes place outside the camera. Mm -hmm. Amusing. So you click the shutter, your film goes out. Click the shutter again, another film goes out. You can click the shutter and up to 10 times. But this is the number of pieces of film in a film pack for the Model 600. That meant that there was no time to take a double exposure. Well, now, Ed bought this camera, not because he didn't like the old camera, but because he said, I've been accused of double exposing film to get mm -hmm. my, my pictures. So he said, I'm going to counter that by buying a camera that you can't double expose. <laughs> and he got several more UFO photographs with that Model 600. Well, now, being hard-nosed skeptics and so on, those of us who really paid attention to this said, well, is it possible that Ed could have figured out, well, he, by the way, he bought this camera on like March 7th of 1988 and took his first UFO photo on March 8th of 1988, the first mm. one with this new camera. That was uh, several weeks after a previous picture taken with the old camera. Anyway, the question was, was there a way to double expose, and could Ed have figured that out? Well, it turns out that if you inhibited the mechanical motion of the camera, there's a, a, a door, a sort of a door-like thing that opened downwards uh, to let the film come out. Now, I can't remember exactly what you had to do now, but if you manipulated that door correctly, you could stop the ejection. Then you could push the film back in a little bit and close the door, and you would be able to take a second exposure. So in other words, you had to figure out how to manipulate the camera. This was not something that people knew. We had to call up the headquarters of Polaroid to find out. <laughs> and uh, that raised the question, you know, is, did Ed have the knowledge to do that? We didn't think so. There well, were some other stereo photos that took with a picture with that type of camera, which completely ruled out the double exposure uh, uh, explanation. There's another issue in that if there be a place where you can actually open up some sort of a, an opening at the place where the film would want to be ejected and push the film back in, you would expect to see some form of light leakage in that corner, in that side, 
when you push right. the film back in, you'd expect to see a smear of light potentially you in that. To, right. You had to grab this, catch this film just as it's barely beginning to eject. But the other thing is, these pictures were practically all taken at night. It's mm-hmm. not like there was a lot of light around that could expose the film that did get stuck out. Here's a question. Now, given that he was taking so many photos, did you I see... Might just, I might just add, add by the yeah. way, that what convinced me... Now, I started investigating that at the request of the MUFON investigators in... Uh, Gulf Breeze, the Gulf Breeze, Pensacola area. They asked me to come down. The fun for UFO research paid for the trip. I went there in the third weekend, in, or second weekend, or third weekend in February. I think it was February 19th, 1988. Spent the weekend there, met Ed, went to some of the sites of his photos, played with his camera, proved that I could, that I could do a double exposure with his old camera. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I did it. A double exposure. I created a UFO photo right, in, almost right in front of him. He had gave no indication he realized what I had done. But anyway, I was tracking this stuff on a day-to-day basis, practically, through his uh, building of a stereo camera. He had taken photos with a so-called Nimslow four lens camera that had been given to him by the uh, Mufon people, and told that that would create four different pictures mm-hmm. uh, that different photo analysts could look at. Well, it did create four photographs the way it was designed. The lenses were a couple of centimeters apart. The two outer lenses were two and a half centimeters apart, if I recall correctly, a little bit bigger, comparable to the spacing in your eyes. And this was to, to use to be create a special lenticular type of photograph that would give you a 3D sort of effect. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. During the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney talking to Dr. Bruce Maccabee, and we're going back to the Ed Walters case. And you yes, continue with your description because I talked to him a few times on the phone way back when. Very instructive. You know, even if you don't even think the whole thing is a hoax, it's very instructive to analyze what happened during the investigation. He was given this Nimslow camera and told that it would provide four photos. He was not told that, oh, by the way, the fact that the two outer lenses are two and a half centimeters apart means that we can do a stereo <coughs> effect. We can get a parallax uh, with these two lenses and maybe measure the distance. So if you were, so, it was like saying, without telling him, look, Ed, if you take a model 10 feet 
10, 10 feet away and photograph it, we're going to know it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, he took a series of photographs of a strange object that passed by with this camera. And uh, because he had done that, after we, after it was done and the camera, the film was uh, you know developed and so on, and I analyzed it over the following months or two, I said, you know, this camera could provide distance information. Well, that didn't seem to phase him any. Although, for a hoaxer who is using small models at a distance of 5 or 10 feet and claiming they're big objects hundreds of feet away, mm -hmm. this would be a little bit scary. Sure. Nevertheless, Ed said, oh, I would like, you know, like to be able to do that even better. And I said, well, you could get two Polaroid cameras and put them a foot apart and fire them both at the same time, and that would give us a parallax effect, and we could calculate distances out to 20, 30, 40 feet, whatever. And the next thing I know, Ed's made a camera, but it's better than that. It's two feet separation between the cameras. <laughs> and he t actually took some photographs one night, uh, a stereo pair at uh, Shoreline Park, which is an area south on the south coast, the coast of Gulf Breeze, right next to the Santa Rosa Sound. He took a couple of photo, couple of photos, which is well, to be try semi trite about it, have not been explained. I mean, this the stereo parallax effect corresponds to a distance of well over 100 feet, size of the object being 10 feet maybe, something like that. Uh, we don't really know the exact distances because the parallax effect had not been calibrated at that point. We just can make a, a pretty good guess. But because of those pictures, I said, well, you, ought to, you could do better. You could make this camera much more rigid and calibratable and so on. He took another set of pictures with an improved camera. And then uh, and that, again, that showed something different where an object apparently had moved, I guess, between pictures. It's hard to say exactly what happened. But then the most convincing set were taken in May, May 1 of 1988, just before apparently his, an abduction. And the reason these pictures are very interesting for analysis is we know where he was at Shoreline Park. He was looking outwards onto the shore, onto the San Rosa Sound, looking south, and um, about a mile away was a bridge that goes across from the Gulf Breeze Peninsula to the Pensacola Beach Peninsula, crosses the Santa Rosa Sound, this bridge does, and the lights on the bridge are in the camera, are in the film, in the pictures. So you got two pictures side by side, a foot apart, two feet apart. Each picture shows these distant lights. That provides the parallax calibration. Mm -hmm. And I was able to determine from analyzing the uh, images of two UFOs. Each photograph showed two different types of UFOs. One type of UFO was what he had photographed with the Nimslow camera. The other type was what he had photographed most of the time with the other cameras. And as I recall, he had two different parallaxes, I guess. The one for the uh, more, more usual type of UFO showed it was 450 feet away and 100 and some feet above the water, if I recall correctly. And uh, the small, uh, shorter, the other UFO, which is the, what they had photographed with the Nuzzle camera, turned out to be, I think, 130 feet away and some tens or 100 feet above the water. I don't recall now. But the point is that those stereo photos came calibrated, and I was able to calculate actual distances and positions of these objects. They were out over the water. Mm -hmm. and you have to ask, how the hell did he photograph that? How, how did he fake that? <laughs> Even um, uh, Robert Nathan at uh, JPL, who was a severe critic of all UFO photos, including the Huffman photos that he worked on way back in the 60s, was a little bit flabbergasted by how Ed could have faked this parallax in a situation where you got these cameras that develop the film basically instantaneously in a situation 
where you've actually got calibrating lights off in the distance. Okay, I got the impression here in talking with you uh, that you more or less accept the Ed Walters case is correct, right? Yeah, well, I saw that, and I put together everything that I had seen Ed do up to that point, plus the fact that there were other witnesses. Like I said, the last witness of the... Uh, of that series of sightings was in July 10th, I think it was, or early July of 1988, after oh, more than a month after Ed's last sighting. And the, these people were the uh, county coroner, a doctor, Fenner McConnell, and his wife, uh, who had a, a nice house right on the uh, water's edge of uh, the western part of uh, the, the Gulf Breeze Peninsula. And they reported that when, when uh, Fenner McConnell got up, one one morning and this morning on July 10th or whatever the date was, to go out running in the morning, he noticed out uh, over the water this object that he had seen in Ed's published photos was out over the water and he called his wife and she came and saw it too and they could see the light from the bottom of it coming down illuminating the water and then it just sort of after hovering there for some many seconds moved away up into the sky and when Fenner McConnell's wife Shirley was interviewed uh, a year or so later uh, she was on what Current Affair or some one of these programs that ran back in those days and she said we looked out we saw that thing and, and it wasn't any hoax by Ed. So that kind of corroborating witness testimony definitely leads strong credence to the idea this was sure. genuine. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Dr. Bruce Maccabee. By the way, Doctor, is there a place we can contact you or listeners if they want to get in touch with you and learn more about the things you've done? Yeah, well, of course, you can go to my website, which has got more than 50 megabytes worth of all sorts of free information there. Uh, sightings and things that I have investigated, history, uh, sighting investigations, photographs, you name it. Uh, and that is HTTP colon slash slash, the standard introduction. Um, then B R U M A C Brumac period Brumac dot eight K number eight letter K dot com Brumac dot eight K dot com. You could also put triple W dot Brumac dot eight K dot com. And actually, there's also a link to your site off can... of the the Wikipedia entry on you as well. There's a direct link to your site uh, there as well. And we'll have it over at the Paracast, yeah. our website, theparacast.com, when the show is announced. David? You know, the, there's a lot that's been written about the um, the Gulf Breeze situation, Bruce. And, and I'm wondering, were you able to find any other photographs that corroborate with what Walter shot? Because if you had stuff appearing that often, you would expect other people to be able to take shots of it. And was there any video that surfaced? Well, there were couple other pictures, but the problem is, uh, well, one set of photographs that appeared is a guaranteed hoax. Another another couple of pictures were taken by a person who uh, claimed that he, well, anonymous witness. Let's see, the first comparable photos taken supposedly by another person, and, you know, I say supposedly, I don't believe that Ed took them. They were 35 millimeter pictures. were said given to the newspaper in December of 1987, I believe it was, and published, by, and one of them was published in the newspaper by some lady, supposedly, who said that uh, she didn't if she came forward, she'd get into trouble with her family for religious reasons or something. 
Hmm. In any case, they were pictures very of uh, the same object on uh, a 35 millimeter. I can't remember if they were prints or slides. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she gave. I think she sent the negatives to the newspaper. But I'm not positive. It may have been prints sent to the newspaper. Then there was another guy who claimed he saw these, uh, or another set of pictures sent to the newspaper with the claim that they were taken by a guy who signed his letter, Believer Bill, who said he had seen these things hovering over some area in, in Gulf Breeze, I forget exactly where, and had a small, one of those little 10-millimeter type of film cameras, a, uh, a jiffy camera or whatever you call it, uh, and he took some number of pictures that showed one or two of these objects. Again, something that would be a situation where you would have to set up the scene. You couldn't do a double exposure with this little, these little cameras. Anyway, um, in November of 1988, the newspaper received a series of photographs from our, that uh, we started studying, and they looked uh, a little weird, let's say. <laughs> but there was, uh, again, an anonymous witness. And after two weeks, he called up the newspaper editor and said, Why didn't my pictures been published? Hmm. And the other newspaper editor said, well, where is in Ed's case where Ed had taken a couple of pictures where the UFO was behind something of known distance? And by the way, this was a tough a tough fake. Anyway, I might mention earlier, again, after I finish the, the present story, the newspaper editor told the guy who called, all your pictures show the object in front of something. It doesn't show the object behind anything. So guess what? A week later, he gets a series of photographs in which this same object <laughs> is now partially behind something. Hmm. Well, of course... <laughs> that sounds just too neat. Yeah. Ed's first picture, however, referring to something behind something, Ed's first picture that he took, and this is with one of the old Polaroids, shows the object hovering beyond, well, its image is cut by a nearby tree. We know the tree was like 20 feet away from where Ed was. And it, it blocks, apparently blocks part of the image of the object. When I first saw that, uh, at, when I was at JPL, actually, with Bob Nathan, he had a copy of Ed's first five photographs. I looked at that thing, and the first thing I said, that's a tough double exposure. Why? <laughs> because the tree image cut into the shape of the UFO image. If you were to double expose, do it by double exposure, you'd have to be able to correctly register the background scene, which includes this tree. Mm-hmm. And then a UFO image with its cutout cut around the edge of the tree and correctly place the UFO model, if you wish, to make your second exposure uh, so right that the, the cutout right of the tree matches the uh, cutout of the uh, the edge of the tree matches the cutout from the UFO model. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do that in Hollywood, you know, where you can do careful registrations, but Ed standing there with his little camera <laughs> isn't going to be able to do that. So right off the bat, the um, the skeptics started off uh, you might say, behind the eight ball, right with that first photograph, it had a couple other pictures that were like that as well, where uh, some nearby thing was clearly cutting into the image, and you'd have to ask, how the hell could you do that with this Polaroid camera? You didn't. It wasn't a single-lens reflex camera. You couldn't look out through the lens. Your, your lens was an inch or two or two inches away from uh, the viewing port. was a couple inches away sideways from where the lens was. So it would be a, a really difficult thing. And you'd think that he'd have to waste an awful lot of film to get one picture right. One of the things we checked, by the way, was if there were a series of several photographs supposedly taken one after another, did it check with the back numbers on the back? You know, the show was a series. Mm-hmm. 
One of the things that people have a hard time understanding, and we've run into this in talking to people about things like reported orb photographs, is that when you're looking through a um, point-and-shoot camera and you're looking through the viewfinder, people don't understand that they are looking not through the lens, but they are looking through right. a separate piece of optics that's up above the lens and is physically separate from it, as sure. where with a, with an SLR, essentially the whole mirror mechanism inside the camera is porting up to the viewfinder, the actual image coming through the lens, and when you snap right. a photo, when you depress the shutter, the mirror essentially moves out of the way, film is exposed, mirror moves back down, and this is um, what I've used to, I, I've explained to people who take shots uh, and they show up at uh, meetings and show Show me these things that are supposed orb photos, and they say, you know, when I took the, the picture, I didn't see these things in the viewfinder. And I'll say to them, let me guess, you're using a point-and-shoot camera. Gee, how did you know that? Well, <laughs> this is how these things happen. And also, as far as registration goes, that's another thing that I think most of our listeners are probably not aware of in that when visual effects are done for movies, everything is very closely pin registered so that when you shoot back what we call background plates, mm -hmm. as computer graphics are designed, they are designed, you know, if you're introducing, let's say, a computer graphic dinosaur or a spaceship into a scene, the location, the placement of that object in the film frame is all very carefully controlled. It's not just like someone in Photoshop is going to move something around with a selection tool and place it where they want, in that when you're doing motion picture special effects or any kind of animation, reproducibility over 24 to 30 frames a second means that everything has to be pin registered. And actually, right. it's kind of an, an interesting offshoot of that is that in Photoshop, there is a sub-menu called Calculations, one of the most interesting aspects of Photoshop, probably the least well understood. And all of the Calculations commands have their foundation in the fact that one of the two brothers that developed Photoshop was working as a visual effects supervisor at Industrial Light and Magic. And the whole idea behind Calculations was that it was designed specifically to process pin-registered plates and so, uh, and, and this is part of the sort of the history of Photoshop that really most people don't know. And, and you know, what we're talking about here, Bruce, is the fact that the, 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 the techniques and the art of creating fabricated photographs goes back a long way, as does the history of UFO photographs. And, and I'd like to ask you. I'll tell you what, before we pursue that, we're done with our number one of the Paracast, and we're going to pursue more of the creation of UFO photographs in part two with Bruce Maccabee on the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We're back with Bruce Maccabee joining myself. Can I take Steinberg. a five-minute break? Sure thing. Sure. <laughs> Before David asks a question of Dr. Maccabee, Bruce, you had a, some comments you wanted to make about what David said. Yeah, he was referring to orb photos and also to the single-lens reflex camera that has a built-in mirror that mm -hmm. essentially blocks your view uh, through the lens at the time the picture is being taken. Right. First, I'll comment on this uh, mirror situation because it uh, plays a role in, in a photo which was taken in, guess where, Gulf Breeze by uh, uh, a lady who uh, had been called to a scene. This is January 8th of 1990. Brenda Pollock and her husband were called by Ed to come and see this UFO that they had, that Ed had uh, spotted up in the sky. He, it had always been criticized as not having witnesses to his sighting, so this time he and his wife were out walking, uh, taking an evening stroll, and they saw this 
object up in the sky. Instead of standing there gawking at it, the first thing I did was he decided to run home, call up a number of people, see if they could come and see it at the same time that he was. Then he got his camera, went out, and uh, started taking some pictures. Well, Brenda Pollock showed up with her camera, and um, I don't have time to go into the details of the sighting. It's on my website. The title of the paper is called Not Just Another Evening Stroll. And near the end of the sighting, which lasted uh, 10, 15, 20 minutes, of a dark, dark circular object seen silhouetted against clouds with a, a light or uh, some several bright lights in the center of this object. Brenda Pollock decided at first she thought it was too dark to take a picture. Uh, she had just bought this camera and hadn't used it very much. It was a single lens reflex camera with a 300 millimeter focal length lens. Near the end of the sighting, the, uh, dark, the light at the center of this object had gone out, and she could still see the dark disk silhouetted against uh, clouds with a, a moon up above to create backlighting. So this is nighttime situation. From the point of view of the conventional photographer, she did a very foolish thing and decided, well, if I'm going to take a picture, I better do it now before the disk disappears. So she holds, puts her camera up to her eyes and points it towards this disk. She can just barely see through the lens. And with her, I think with ASA 400 or ISO 400 film she had in it, she pressed the shutter button. Now, when she pressed the shutter button, since this was a single lens reflex camera, she could no longer see through the lens. And the camera had an automatic, well, uh, a automatic exposure control, which allowed it to run for four seconds. The shutter was open for up to four seconds. Mm-hmm. So she was accustomed to daytime photography. You press the button, you hear maybe click, click, and that's the end of the picture. Instead, she heard the first click, and then she, Nothing and nothing and nothing, and she's thinking, uh-oh, my camera's broken. Finally, the second click comes, and she can see through the lens, and there's nothing there. Now, point is, when she's open, when she pressed the button, it was while she was looking at a dark disk silhouetted against the sky. Then for four seconds, she couldn't see it. And at the end of the four seconds, the shutter closed, the mirror removed itself. She's again seeing through the lens, nothing there. This is an important thing to realize. She thought, well, there's nothing on that picture. When she took her film to be developed, she was thinking of saying, well, don't develop the whole thing. You know, there's some pictures, there's a picture that doesn't have anything. Mm. But they gave her a print anyway, and she looked at it, and, and in the center of the print, there's this little squiggly line, which is, she realized was, you know, made up of some sort of a light image that was, that occurred at the time she took that photograph. Well, so I blew it up and looked at it. It's a squiggly line, which means it goes, it's not a straight line, it's wiggly, and loops over on itself and so on. What it amounts to is the length of this line corresponds to hand motion. You ever try to hold a 300-millimeter focal length lens steady, forget it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Especially if you're looking upwards. This line squiggles around and so on. The point is that the beginning of the line is when she opened the lens. The end of the line is when the lens closed. And during that time... There were about a hundred different colored bursts of light. These are little images like Hmm. sausage links, I sort of think of it. Sausage links of different color. And it all happened in four seconds. A hundred, that's 25 flashes per second. Somebody just looking at it, it would just look like a steady light of some sort of an average color. But the camera, because she could not hold it steady, the camera smeared the image over a a length of line, you might say, a squiggly length of line, and that broke this image up into a series of of lights, which that fact by itself is, uh, is surprising. But then when you realize that there was no light on when she pushed, as she pushed the button, there was no light, and there was no light afterwards, you have to assume that the object, well, I don't know, dare you say there was synchronicity there? 
that it didn't mm. flash these hundred bursts at the time she had the lens open and not, not before and not after. That seems Sounds unlikely. bizarre, doesn't it? Yeah, this was not Ed Walters. Bizarre. This was Brenda Pollock. <laughs> Brenda Pollock was a uh, city councilwoman uh, in, in, in Gulf Breeze. Well, well, now, um, Bruce, I have a question for you. As far as the differentiation of the chromacity or the color of these bursts of light, did you see any kind of a noticeable a cyclical pattern to this, or was it fairly no, random? No, I tried to see if there was any pattern. And, yeah. Well, if there might be somebody who spends time doing some sort of complex statistics, it looked to me like it was basically random. But anybody can look at it themselves. It's on my website in the, the section on uh, Gulf Breeze sightings. Or no, I take that back. It's it's on it's on the section on the uh, the not just another evening stroll. You have to scan down the front page and find it. I forget exactly where it is. Now the other thing I want to talk about was the orbs. I also have on my website an article on orbs and how I got involved with uh, analyzing orb photographs. When a guy who um, contacted me, he bought a new camera and he said he got these funny little images in his camera and he couldn't figure out what they were. He wanted, it was a new digital camera. He wanted to. His camera was broken already or something, mm-hmm. and I had no idea. I, had, I was aware that people were taking these little photogra- photographs, generally circular, sort of semi-diffuse images that seemed to be overlaying other images and pictures, and uh, I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't really have that much time to think about it. When the guy wrote to me, I said, well, you could try some experiments. Maybe there's some light leaks. Uh, try putting some tape around for corners of your camera or something like that. Just anything to see if, you, if, if light is somehow leaking in. He wrote back to me after a couple of weeks saying that he had discovered that these pictures, these little images, they got more of them when the kids were jumping up and down on the rug than when nothing was happening. <laughs> and that, of course, took me a few microseconds yeah, yeah. <laughs> to realize what yeah, was going on. We got to watch those kids jumping down the rug. Let me, before we persist <laughs> with this... <laughs> <laughs> this <laughs> I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane Sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com 
where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Dr. Bruce McAbee with us, who's a photographic expert of long standing. And David tells me a wonderful piano player, so I now want to hear his CD. Is it available on (laughs) iTunes, by the way, or is it just from you? No, but I actually have two pieces on my website. One of them I call The Flight of the Bumble Boogie. It starts off with The Flight of the Bumblebee and ends up with a Bumble Boogie. And it's accompanied by my son on drums and my daughter on uh, bass. Excellent. It's a really good piece. It's a great interpretation. I love it. Okay, so you basically keep you've, you've all the talent it? in the family. He's yeah, heard I've it. I've heard it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's linked on the website. Of course I've heard it. Okay, well, I have a CD that's got that piece and 13 other original compositions. The last piece on the CD is a piece I wrote to commemorate the 50th anniversary of UFOs. And I, first, I, I played it for the first time publicly at the uh, MUFON Symposium. I think it was in Missouri or Grand Rapids, Michigan. I uh, can't remember exactly, um, but in 1997, July of 1997. That piece I call New Age Rising is on the uh, CD mm-hmm. along with uh, a dozen others. That's great. That anyway, I want to say something about, about the uh, orbs. Yeah. When that guy told me about getting more orbs when the kids were jumping up and down the rugs, it took me a few microseconds to realize what was going on. Dust in the air. So I started my own investigation and more rather than just you know trying to do jumping up and down the rugs, which I did. I, I did <laughs> equivalent, equivalent to that. I would lie down on the rug, hold the camera maybe six or eight inches above the rug, and then take a picture while I was whacking the rug with my hand. And I could get zillions and zillions of orbs creatures. <laughs> zillions and zillions of these orbs. And this is all, of course, done with a flash camera. So I call them flash orbs. I did uh, experiments with uh, little um, hollow glass spheres that are a tenth of a millimeter or smaller in diameter. Uh, 100 microns down to 4 or 5 microns. And, you know, puff these into the air and uh, see what happens. And you get these images that are basically out of focus. That's what makes them so strange. They're very close to the lens, and they can't be focused by the lens. Within, when they're within a few inches of the lens, they can't be focused. What they do is they reflect light from the flash back into the lens, and they essentially make a shadow graph of the circular image of the lens. Mm-hmm. Most lenses of cameras are circular, but I happen to have a Polaroid camera, not of the type that Ed used, but a different type of Polaroid camera, which had a rectangular aperture. Mm. And guess what shape the orbs were? Mm-hmm. They were rectangular. <laughs> so I wrote this paper, which, as I said, is published on my website. It gives all the technical details. And I asked the question, why is it? Now, I first started hearing about this probably about 10 years ago. I asked myself, why didn't people complain about this years ago? Flashes have been around for a long time. And I decided it was a combination of two things. It started happening when people were using these digital cameras primarily. Although those experiments that I did were with the throwaway type of camera that you buy. In the old days when you had a flash, you set it and it was in a special holder on sitting maybe on top of the camera or off to the side. There were several inches, many inches, between where the lens was and where the flash was. 
Right. With the new cameras, you've got maybe an inch to an inch and a half, maybe at the most two inches between where the lens is and where the where the flash is. The flashes are at least as bright, maybe even brighter now than they used to be, and you've got faster film. All these things combined so that if there's some little teeny object in front of the lens, had there been dust only an inch or two in front of the lens with the old for, format of cameras, the flash would not have lit it up. But now the little dust particle in front of the lens is close enough to the flash so that some flashlight, some of the light from the flash goes straight to that little particle and then into the lens. Uh, and you can see that these flash orb images, if you want to call it an image, tend to overlay whatever the camera is actually photographing. Mm-hmm. Occasionally you will find a, something in a scene which is brighter than the brightness of the flash orb itself. And if the flash orb occurs so that let's say half of it is cut by this real image, it may appear that the flash orb is behind whatever the real image is. For example, if you photograph the edge of of a white house in the middle of the night and you've got dust particles around, there might be a dust particle really close to the camera which partially lines up with the edge of the house so that half the orb image appears in a dark area beyond the house. These are nighttime photographs with a flash. But the flash light ref- light from the flash that hits the house and comes back into the camera completely swamps the orb light in the area of the image where the house is. And if that happens, it will look to you as if this orb is on the other side of the house. I was fortunate in one of my experiments to get a situation like that where I had a uh, uh, one of the orb images appear as if it were on the other side of a piece of wood in a framework, an archway that I knew was about uh, 50 feet away from the camera. And I knew that the orb itself was a little piece of dust that was within inches of the camera. Nevertheless, it looks as if, and when you look at my website, you can see, it looks as if the orb is peeking out from behind this uh, wooden uh, structure. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I just get a lot of orb images having to do with the flash. Filers Files has a couple just this week, I believe. Uh, photos that people send in that are clearly flash orbs. Now, it doesn't have to be flash at night. What we're really talking about is having something in front of the lens very close, which is illuminated by a light, it's silhouetted against a much darker background. And so I have seen photographs taken in the daytime even when you have sun rays coming down past the camera and, say, looking into a forest or something where uh, you can get an orb image type of effect during the day. Absolutely. And people need to realize that also when it comes to these kinds of artifacts, um, lens flares are something that um, present all sorts of shapes and sizes. And in fact, one of the brothers that developed Photoshop, John Knoll, developed a plugin originally for Photoshop and then expanded it for After Effects, something called Lens Flare Pro that Mm -hmm. essentially uh, replicates any number of different lens assemblies and they all give very different looks to the way that they Mm -hmm. actually resolve when the light's coming through and with the lens flare it doesn't have to be the sun you can have a bright light source in an otherwise dark scene and it can be off camera in other words it can be out of the frame Mm -hmm. and it's still generating those artifacts if people aren't familiar with photographic technology though they they really have no way of knowing that. And so they, they assume that these things are paranormal. And along those lines, there have been the video footage of these things. I'm thinking they're called J-Rods. Uh, there's this one fellow who claims to have discovered a new life form. Look, it's life that Oh, exists. I mean rods, not J-Rods. Rods, not J-Rods. J- you're right, J-Rod. you're right. <laughs> now that's right. Thank you for correcting me. Rods. Told the rod, David. I have to tell people something before we drop that rod. 
If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want, for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We are talking to Dr. Bruce Maccabee, who is, you know, one of the greats in the UFO field. He specializes in photography. We've been talking a lot of the intricacies here about real or faked photos and rods. So, David, pick up that rod. Do not yeah. point it at me, please. I'm going to hide. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'd like to say something about lens flares first, though. Okay, go One ahead. One of the famous pictures from 1952, the 1952 flap. Those people who are familiar with the history of the subject will know that in the 19 in July, June, July, and August of 1952, the Air Force collected I don't know five or six hundred UFO sightings. They were coming in so fast that on one day they had I think 29 sightings reported, most many of them by uh, military. But the point is that there is a famous photograph taken during that period of time, which shows the Capitol building. Top half of the photograph shows the Capitol building, the United States Capitol, and you know brightly lit by lights. Mm-hmm. And at the left and the right, you see a bunch of color of white. This is a black and white picture, so you get white images of you know sort of circular blobby things spread out left and right uh, of the Capitol building. Maybe you are familiar with this picture. Indeed. If you had seen the whole picture, you would see down at the bottom of the Capitol building, mm-hmm. the whole structure of the building, and you'd see that there are street lights along the uh, along the street in front of the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Well, Coleman von Kavitsky, who was a uh, UFO investigator of many years standing, some 10 or 15 years ago, 20 years ago, I don't know. Uh, he died about 10 years ago, I guess. I remember uh, him. Analyzed this. Sure. Huh? I, I knew him. Yes. Uh, he analyzed this photograph and proved that there was a uh, geometric relationship between all the um, lights on the ground and these images that were up in the sky. Well, basically what he's saying is, because you were photographing lights, that the light can illuminate the lens, it is creating lens flares, and the lens flares appear up in the sky, and the lights themselves appear down below, <laughs> where they ought to be, the light images, right. the images of the lights themselves. So uh, this is a perfect example of what you're talking about, and very often this, the picture is published with just showing the top of the Capitol building and these lights at the left and the right, with a, along with a story, you know, this is all about UFOs in 1952, with the implication mm-hmm. being that here are UFOs on the left and the right of the Capitol building, but, it's, but they aren't. They're obviously just 
lens flares taken from the uh, reflections of the uh, the lights that are on the ground. Uh, I might mention one other thing too. You said it doesn't have to uh, be within the field of view of the picture itself. Right, right. The, the 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 question to be asked is: Did a bright light illuminate the lens at any angle at all? Right. Exactly. In some cases, I have had to ask that question. Of right. people, you know, could the sun or the moon or a street light or whatever have illuminated the camera lens, even though you didn't see it in the picture? That's right. And one of the things that you you do when you analyze a photograph, you look for the presence of shadows in the overall scene because that tells you a lot mm-hmm. about where the ambient light sources are located. And um, right. and that's some of what I came up with, Bruce, in analyzing some of the uh, nighttime Billy Meyer photographs were were clear examples of the problems introduced when you supposedly have a bright light in a scene, yet the things that that light is supposed to be right on top of are A, not reflecting that light, and B, not showing shadows underneath where they're obscuring where the light would be otherwise falling. When you have those kinds of problems in photographs, they're clear giveaways of fabricated images. Now, now all of that said, perhaps the most famous UFO photos of all time predates the Kenneth Arnold sightings, and it's the infamous Battle of Los Angeles photograph from uh, 1942. I'd love if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your thoughts about that photo. Well, February 1942, February 24th, was it? 25th. Whatever. Yeah. 25th? Okay, I was close. It's been a long time. <laughs> anyway. Uh, it's getting longer every that was second. When, that was when some, some object was reported traveling rather slowly from northwest toward southeast over the western part of Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, I'm not fairly familiar with all the areas there, but numerous people saw this thing going over. And uh, obviously the uh, the Army in charge of uh, shore defense thought it was something that they should attempt to shoot down. Now, back in those days, they had spotlights, ton, many, many um, huge spotlights that are like six feet in diameter. With uh, they, they run at, I don't know, tens or hundreds of kilowatt, kilowatts of light output to make a very bright beam to go up maybe a mile into the atmosphere in order to, light, in order to illuminate aircraft uh, so that uh, they could be targeted by anti-aircraft uh, rifles. And, and that particular night, this thing was going over, and it was picked up by the spotlights, and uh, anti-aircraft uh, guns opened up, and over a period of, what, half an hour was it or something? Mm-hmm. Um, they shot 1,400 rounds or 1,600. I forget what the number was. I, I wouldn't want to be in Los Angeles <laughs> with all this lead raining down on my shoulders. But anyway, they were shooting up at this thing. This, one surprising aspect is there appears to be only one photograph. Uh, recently, a video appeared on the uh, Internet which combines two things. A video of some day or other, I don't know, showing, uh, and by the way, I think the source of this video is claimed is Jose Escamilla, the same guy who talks about the rods. Ah, uh, the rods. But he combined a movie film of spotlights going up into the sky, which was, uh, I don't know where that's from, what date or, or, or location, combined that with the still photograph taken by, uh, what, the Los Angeles Times reporter, uh, the, the one photograph we know of that exists, which shows six or seven beams going up and converging at one area, one small volume up above Los Angeles. It is sad that we can't find out exactly where that picture was taken from and that we can't determine where the uh, spotlights were. 
if we could determine that, you know, and by the way, there has been a search by Frank Warren for many, several years now for any sort of uh, information on uh, on that photograph. But if we could determine where that was exactly, we could probably get a good idea, an even better idea of what was up there. If you look at the picture, which is on my website and also, I guess, on the, on the Jeff Rents website, other places as well, if you look at the picture, you see where these beams converge. The, most, the first interesting thing I noticed was the beams did not go through the area and out the other side. In this movie film that was on the, uh, on the net, whoever, Escamillo, whoever put it on, it's very instructive because it also shows, I think, two beams, but they cross, they go through each other. Whereas in this situation uh, of the uh, Battle of Los Angeles photograph, you've got four or five beams coming up, and they just don't go past that volume. Now, if you look at the volume, look at the picture, you know, you see sort of a um, fat football type of shape in there. All you can tell about, of course, are variations in brightness of light as captured by the film. So you can try to make those variations as obvious as possible, which I tried to do by uh, simple image enhancements on my website. It certainly looks like there's some object there which is opaque. That's why the beams don't go through. Right. Now, it might be that there was so much smoke in the area that the beams couldn't penetrate. It doesn't look like that to me. It looks like there's actually something there. You can actually see some little bright spots of light, which probably are explosions going off. The implication being that uh, this photograph is a might be a several-second exposure. I'm not sure. Without knowing anything about the camera, presumably a speed graphic, but who knows what the shutter time was. The fact that it shows the beams of light suggests that it, if it wasn't super high-speed film, it must be some seconds of exposure in order to be able to get in order to be able to get on film the light reflected from dust particles in the atmosphere, which is why you can see the beams going up into the sky in the first place. Mm-hmm. Sure. So my own feeling is that there was something up there, and you know it was multiply certainly a multiple witness sighting, and the government may know more about it than they're saying. There may be some records that haven't been released yet. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there were, but that's about all I can say about the picture anyway. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
This is the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And all I can say is we're talking to Dr. Bruce Maccabee, who's a long-term UFO researcher. You know, one of the issues we've been dealing with on the PowerCast, and certainly one that I'm sure you've seen through the years, is the fact, of course, number one, nobody can get together on anything in the UFO field, as you well know. And the other problem, of course, is are we even making any progress, even forgetting the personality conflicts and all that stuff? Is it possible to make any progress so we can understand what's really going on here? Well, I suppose we're converting the population one by one. <laughs> Boy. I've often felt that if the uh, population of witnesses exceeds some percentage, like say 50% or more, the weight of opinion will start to shift uh, more rapidly. Or once everybody is an abductee, you know, then uh, somebody will stand up and say, yeah, they're real and everybody else will agree. There must be some critical mass somewhere, but uh, I don't know exactly where that is. The resistance to the subject being real is high. It's uh, one of those things you, in some sense, don't want to be true because uh, it introduces a new uncertainty into our lives, the lives of the whole of human civilization. And one thing civilization doesn't like is uncertainty. Obviously, you have to man- you have to cope with some measure of uncertainty in order to be li- able to live on a day-to-day basis, but most of these uncertainties are implicitly manageable. When you come up against other intelligences, you don't know whether it's manageable or not. So... It's much easier to take the skeptical point of view of it's not real, there's nothing out there going on, I don't have to worry about it. Skeptics who have been uh, active in the subject matter, you know, they basically say everything is misidentifications, hoaxes, or delusions. Well, at least it makes their life and simple. That makes their life simple, and they obey the first rule, Maccabee's first rule of debunking, which is any explanation is better than none. You saw that in the O'Hare sighting just back mm-hmm. in, well, it was in November, but the story came out in January. Mm-hmm. Back last November, you know, the object was hovering over the O'Hare airport, reported by a number of United Aircraft employees. One guy who was looking upwards at it said it took off straight up, and he he could see uh, the sky, the, cloud cover, the hole yeah. that had burned in the clouds. Well, this is pretty bizarre stuff, and so what's the quote, explanation, unquote. Well, we think it was a weird weather phenomena. Not sometimes in the evening, you know, this is 4.30 in the afternoon, by the way. But sometimes in the evening, the lights will reflect from the clouds and cause weird effects. Yeah, tell me another one. <laughs> I'll buy that when I'll buy the Brooklyn Bridge. Point is that they had to have some explanation. Any explanation is better than none. And if the first explanation isn't any good, well, a corollary to Maccabee's first law for a debunking is the second law. If the first explanation doesn't seem to satisfy, come up with another one. And we see this type of thing happening over and over again. Uh, you know, the Kenneth Arnold sighting, which is the first publicized sighting, June 24, 1947, has had over half a dozen explanations, the most recent ones being meteors by uh, Philip Class and uh, a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, his name escapes me at the moment. But they published that about 10 or so years ago. And um, on the Internet, we were arguing over could it be geese or pelicans. I don't know if any either of you guys were familiar with those discussions uh, that were carried on long and uh, heavily on uh, the UFO updates uh, list you know, seven, eight years ago. But somebody was seriously considering that pelicans can fly at 9,000 feet and 50 miles an hour and so on, and therefore might have confused Kenneth Arnold <laughs> into thinking he was seeing objects flying past Mount Rainier 20 miles away. Well, I wouldn't and want so, him flying a plane with me in it if he couldn't tell <laughs> pelicans from whatever. <laughs> one, of, one of the arguments that they never could 
counter was his claim that he turned his airplane. Now, he's flying eastward right. towards Mount Rainier at the time, and he's looking out through his windscreen and seeing these objects going by. He said, I turned my plane, and I rolled down my window. I was sitting on the left side of the plane. He rolls down the left side window, so he turns to the right, and he's now going southward and paralleling these objects, more or less. And I looked out through my window and to make sure that there was, I rolled the window down so there was no chance of a reflection that he was seeing or anything. Well, at this point, he was flying in the direction of the objects. Had they been pelicans a mile away, as opposed to large size objects, 80 feet or so, 20 miles away, had they been pelicans, well, actually several thousand feet away, he was doing 100 miles an hour. They were doing no more than 50 miles an hour. The sighting line from him to them Instead of moving towards the south, which is what he reported, the sighting line would appear to go to the north because he would fly south faster than they do. He'd have to start looking backwards at them. This type of thing that skeptics somehow manage to ignore, overlook, or whatever counter-arguments that show their explanations are ridiculous, I don't know how to handle that. But that's, as I said, I think that I believe that's part of this resistance to the uh, reality of the subject itself. It's something that implicitly no one really wants to know about. Hmm. There are some who claim that you know this is all we need to solve problems of humanity. <laughs> I don't know about hmm. that. Well, we don't expect then the UFOs to land on Capitol Hill or on the UN lawn or anything like that in the near future. So what do we do to get here? Obviously, if we convert one person at a time, you and I will be talking about this 10, 20 years <laughs> from now. And we'll possibly have that extra few hundred converted, but that's about it. Well, the continual flux of sightings, they're sort of in control of this situation. I mean, appearing over at O'Hare Airport. What the heck was a UFO doing over O'Hare Airport? Was it there for any reason other than to be seen? Well, yeah, and the sighting apparently went on for about 20 minutes. So it's not, it wasn't a uh, yeah, sighting. I don't, I don't remember how long, yeah. Yeah, it was about 20 minutes. I don't remember how long it was, but... And, of course, after that, when this came public, uh, became public in January, there were a whole raft of obviously fake photographs yeah, that surfaced. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Just a bunch of them showed up at once. Um, uh, there were a couple of things I wanted to touch upon that we were talking about before, Bruce. That video you mentioned of the chat, you know, the quote-unquote chat object taking off from the ground, the person who produced that on uh, YouTube admitted that it was, in fact, a CG fabrication. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, they, they came out and admitted that. I think that was basically instructive to show what you could do. Exactly. It used to be thought that, okay, you can fake a photograph and that's doable, but how can you fake a video? And And uh, Jeffrey Sanio, who looked at that video, pointed out something which I hadn't noticed, but it's really hard to see, uh, get these videos clearly on my low-speed telephone connection. He said the Chad object was hollow. And so in this video, when it takes off, you see a shadow on the ground, which is really good. Problem? The shadow is not hollow. Right. <laughs> yeah, the shadow's soft. So, yes. Yeah, not an accurate shadow. And also the, the fact that the shadow, and here's a dead giveaway with computer-generated shadows. When shadows appear far too clean, when the shadow does not conform to the contours and irregularities of the surface it's being cast upon, that is your dead giveaway that it's a, uh, it's a computer-generated shadow. Right. Or I should say it's a computer-generated shadow not done carefully. For years, I've been teaching people how to do shadows in Photoshop using a very little, I should say, misunderstood filter called displace. And the displace filter essentially takes the pixels of an image and moves them horizontally or vertically based on the brightness of the pixels of another image. 
And this effectively is how you can take a shadow that is flat and have it essentially distort to the contours or the surface irregularities of the surface it's being cast upon, which is that extra added level of realism that tells you that the shadow is not just superimposed, but indeed is happening on a regular surface. That video, the shadow not only is not hollow, it doesn't show the hole in the middle, but it's completely symmetrical and the edges of it are exactly accurate, which you would not expect a real shadow to be. I want to bring up one other thing, though. Before we bring up that thing, hold that thing. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Dr. Bruce Maccabee. If you want to learn more about the things he does, we have a site linked at thepowercast.com, so you just click on his name and you'll go there. David, of course, is you know one of the world's greatest experts on Adobe Photoshop. And if you just listen to what he has to say, you will learn so much about the program. Even the people who want to fake UFOs can listen to David and pick up a few pointers. Unfortunately, (laughs) yes. But that also makes it really difficult now because of the fact that more and more people know what to do. It makes it all the more difficult to find the real photo from the fake photo. David? Well, about the the craft that's seen in most of the Ed Walters photographs, I think it's always more compelling to find when a UFO is sighted in various parts of the world and the look of the UFO is very similar. Bruce, I'll send you a link to a photograph I found on UFO evidence, which is one of the most compelling UFO photographs I've seen. And I've done some research on this, and I'm having a hard time establishing the provenance and the sourcing of this photograph. But it's one that was supposedly shot in the Canaima region of Venezuela. This is where the falls, uh, the Angel Falls are located, and there's some other very You're talking about a photo of an object that looks like what Ed saw, Ed photographed? Yes. It's casting. We, yeah, that's published. That's published in uh, the book. UFOs are real. Here's the proof. This is a. I wrote. Really? Now this is a photo that uh, of this object casting a light beam down into water. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, it's not water. It's a cloud. It's up above no. a valley. The story. Ed got this photo from a guy who sent it to him. Yeah, you're, you're talking about. Uh, I, I think we're talking about coming from photo. other. Yeah, no, well, but I think we're talking about another photograph. It's in the though. Angel Falls region. Angel Falls region of Venezuela. Right, but this object is actually sitting on top of what looks like a lake, and it's casting a beam down on on the water of the lake. It's not. It's not high yellowish. Um, no, it's, it's a black and white photo. It's a black and white photograph. Yeah, no, it's not casting on a cloud. I, I believe me, I know the difference between a cloud and a lake. This photo is really interesting, and it's really interesting because of the fact that it does look to me a lot like the object in the Ed Walters pictures. More so, it is being affected by atmospheric density in a way that you would expect, and the light beam itself that's coming down on the water is entropic. It is not a solid beam. There are areas of the beam that appear to be more luminescent than others, that appear to be more transparent than others, and this is a daylight photograph, and this mm-hmm. beam is, is very no 
noticeable. Which and and when I say day that photograph, there's a good amount of light up in the sky. It's almost washed out to the point where the image almost looks overexposed. But still, this beam is very visible. It, it is an absolutely. I think it's a very compelling photograph. It turns out that that region of Venezuela, the Canaima region, is awash in UFO sightings. It's a very active area in terms of the number of sightings and the variety of craft that are seen there. And uh, I'll send you the link to this thing. It's really fascinating. I would love to find out about... I'll bet you. Yeah. I'll bet you that you're talking about the picture that I'm talking about. It's right on the cover of UFOs Here's the Proof in the upper left-hand corner. And it is a color photograph. There's actually several photographs that Ed received from other people from around the world Mm -hmm. that showed the same type of object that he had photographed and we weren't able to publish all of them we did publish quite a few and this one from Kainaima, venezuela january 1990 on hiking from angel falls ray harcourt who sent the picture saw the ufo just above some valley clouds before he took his this photo the ufo radiated an orange glow and lifted higher in the air so apparently it was going upwards at the time this shows a if the color were correct and i don't think it is sort of a yellowish sky in the picture as it's presented on the front end of the front of this booklet uh, sort of an orangish beam going down and hitting this uh fuzzy area whitish which is what the guy claims is a mountain the clouds in the valley, he was looking out over a valley, and the, and what you calling a lake is actually the top of a cloud la- cloud layer in the ba- in the valley itself. You see, you see the mountain line, a line of mountains up above that are up, up higher than the uh, than the clouds. This sounds like a different photograph to me. I'm telling you, I'll go look, I'll verify this, but it sounds like a different picture. It could be from a similar series, but it sounds different to me. I could be wrong. I always reserve the right to be wrong on this show. The point, that, the, the point that I want to make, Everybody though, should reserve the right to be wrong. <laughs> well, David doesn't, of course, is hardly ever wrong. That's one of the things we have to recognize about David. He's only been wrong three times in his life, and that was okay. one of the times. So uh, I, think it's okay. been, I think it's more than three times. But Four? the point is that uh, the, Four. This, this photograph is really fascinating to me. And it when I see a photograph of an object that is very similar, if not exactly the same, as an object seen in another part of the world. And the photograph has lots of compelling attributes all of its own. To me, it strengthens the argument for that photograph being genuine. But here's the thing, Bruce and Gene. I mean, one of the things uh, that I tell people all the time is, okay, let's say we have a photograph of a UFO that we know is not faked, is not fabricated, is not hoaxed, is genuine. The truth of the matter, unfortunately, is that that photograph does really very little to nothing to get us any closer to an answer about what these things are. So, you know, you have a photograph of an unknown object and it's a legitimate photograph. Well, what do you have? You have a photograph of an unknown object. That's pretty much as far as it goes. Right. And that, that's what gets a little frustrating about this. Even if you can f- say it's further, further evidence of, uh, of reality, uh, the best a photo can be is an aid to the recollection of the witness. Right. Photos can, in principle, contain proof that something is a hoax. But if the person is really clever, presumably there won't be any proof of a hoax, in which case you have to fall back on the personal testimony. But as you said, I mean, if, you, if we had an absolute guaranteed photograph taken by the president and company of uh, 
President Bush in the company of all the Democrats in Congress. <laughs> well, you know what? That's maybe pushing it. I think we need the Republicans also and a few independents before we believe this. <laughs> yeah, well. That's <laughs> just the way it is now. you're right. The uh, supposedly, what's his name, the uh, Speaker of the House has a lower credibility reading than, than the President. Oh, boy. Uh, that would shock me. Close. <laughs> yeah. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I Can. Host I Can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's host. I can give them a try. You'll be glad you did. Hey, all you have to do is go to our website, thepowercast.com and scroll down a little bit. You'll see a host. I can banner. That's a host. I can banner at thepowercast.com. Click on that banner and you'll learn more about host. I can where we host our sites. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We are talking with Dr. Bruce McAbee about photos, the UFO field, and everything else. There are cases where we learn something about the capabilities of the object if if you assume that the cases are real. For example, the F-4 Phantom case over Iran... Uh, mm-hmm. In 1976, mm-hmm. the Iranian jet case, where you have two jets launched after an object that was spotted by people on the ground in, in, in Tehran. They called up the um, guy who was uh, in charge of air traffic control at Marabad Airport at the time. At first, he didn't believe them, but after he received about four or five calls from people talking about this thing hovering over their houses uh, in uh, uh, northeastern Iran, he walked out onto the balcony or out into a place where he could see anyway. He he says, I took my binoculars, I focused them on a distant airplane on on the ground to make sure they were focused correctly, and then I turned them over to the direction that these people were talking about, and sure enough, I saw this object. And he watched this thing which he described in several various ways. One of the people had described it as a looking from below like a attic, a ceiling fan, sort of. He, looking at it from the side, said that he could see something like thing with two blue ends and a red light going around the middle or something. It's on my website, and it's been discussed recently in the Mufon Journal within the last year. Anyway, um, he then called uh, the uh, Air Force, a general in charge of, uh, I don't know, alert status of the Air Force, and the general went out, and he saw the thing, too. So he scrambled two jets. 
one after another. He didn't know he was going to scramble two. He just scrambled the first one. First one approached the object. There's a long story here, but got close enough and all of a sudden lost his aircraft electronics control. It was, he was, uh, wasn't even able to talk to the guy in the back seat. How close he was to this object, his radar had showed him about 25 mile, nautical miles away when all this happened. And so he turned away, and a second guy gets launched. These are the, the launch from an airport, uh, Air Force, uh, Iranian Air Force base that's 100 miles from Tehran. So it takes him a couple of minutes to get there. When the second one gets there, he sees the object and starts chasing it eastward towards the uh, border of Afghanistan. And then all of a sudden it reverses direction and zipped back towards Tehran, and he uh, turned around to follow it, but it beat him by a considerable margin, according to the air traffic controller who was watching all this from the ground. This would be a very complicated story, but the second jet also emitted a small object towards the, that went downwards to start a curve towards the jet. The jet guy was about ready to push a button that would launch a uh, Sidewinder missile, when all of a sudden his electronics went awry, and he lost all uh, control and communications, including the intercom with the, the backseat guy. And then as soon as he turned away, as he pulled a, a roll downwards and uh, turned away from the object, he got, regained his uh, control again and communications. So this shows that whatever these creatures' craft are, they got some technical capabilities that we don't have to be able to stop communications inside an airplane from a distance of 25 miles or more. Uh, is something that we can't do yet. You know, you kind of raised the question there, and we don't have much time left, but maybe I'll ask the question anyway, and that is, are you a subscriber to the extraterrestrial hypothesis or what? Well, I think that's the simplest in the sense that I don't have to postulate things I don't know about, like multiple dimensions, uh, time travel, in hollow earth, whatever. <laughs> we know that we can go there. It's a matter of political will, I suppose, to raise the money and the technical capability and time and effort expended to do it. We've sent men to the moon and robots to Mars and, and farther out planets. We could go to stars. We know we can design things that would do it now. You might not be very healthy by the time you get there. You might be totally irradiated. You could certainly be a lot older. You might not even live to get to the next star. But the principle is we can understand the principle, how we can understand how it's done in principle. And we can imagine somebody else that's thousands of years ahead of us, you know, being able to know a lot of tricks of the trade that we don't know. I would put the ET hypothesis as number one, but then you can put after that other things that are more bizarre, like uh, being able to travel through wormholes or time travel or coming from other dimensions. I don't know, whatever people have proposed in the past as uh, explanations to that to them seem more likely than extraterrestrial. Bruce, in all of these years... And of course, of research, it may be something so bizarre we can't even think of it. Well, there's, I think that there's a good possibility that that's what we're going to ultimately find out. Bruce, in all of these years of research, uh, I have to ask, do you have any personal sightings that you'd care to share? Uh, well, I saw something in Gulf Breeze, uh, of all places. During the second or third phase of sightings down there, the Ed Walters phase was from May, November 87, all the way through July of uh, 88. That's when he was seeing that strange object that he photographed, and other people were seeing it as well. And, but then after that, the sighting rate dropped off, but did not go anywhere near zero. It continued. And then in 1990, they started seeing, November 1990, they started seeing red light objects going around that were called Bubba's, and uh, these Bubba sightings 
studies continued through 1991, and in September of 1991, they started seeing rings of light going through the sky. These are people who are going out every night, practically. Hmm. They became very sophisticated. They used cameras. They used optics uh, to uh, get good photographs and videos of these things, multiple witness sightings, one sighting they had over 100 witnesses to. Anyway, when they started seeing rings of light appear, I decided I'd better go down there and see what was going on. So uh, I went down there on the 15th of September, 1991. I was told that I had missed it by a day or two, that they had had a sighting a day or, or two days before. Went out that night and uh, saw nothing. But, you know, uh, I got a feel for what people were doing. Then on uh, the next night, while I was standing there with my binoculars around my neck, like everybody else, and I also had a big ear type of uh, sound device for picking up dis faint sounds. I figured if, it was, had, if this was a model that somebody was flying with a little motor, I'd be able to pick it up. Uh, that was a thing you can get used to be able to get from Edmonds Scientific. And uh, I, so I was making tape recordings of the sounds, and I had my camera. I didn't have a video camera. I had a still camera. I let the other people do most of the optics because they were very familiar with that. So anyway, while I was standing there, all of a sudden, some lady yelled, there it is. Um, she didn't say which way. <laughs> she was just looking in some direction. <laughs> but I happened to look up, and there, sure enough, there was a spot of light up in the up in the sky that hadn't been there before. We were looking into a, a sky. That, this was in September, and the air was very was quite hazy. We were looking into a haze that was being lit by the city lights below. There were some very bright lights. Apparently, a field like a, a, a game field or something like that it had a lot of bright lights on, and this light was going up into the sky and causing the uh, the moisture to glow. You couldn't you could look up and you could just barely make out the stars. If you turn and use your binoculars, you could see faintly see the stars through the glowing sky. And so this glow probably extended upwards by a mile, maybe. At any rate, there was this dot of light that was up in this glow, which had not been there. So I whip up my binoculars, and sure enough, it resolves into a little ring. And I uh, counted the lights in the ring. It turned out to be eight lights. Uh, I pointed the big ear thing at this object paid some attention to making sure I was getting recordings and tried to take a couple of pictures of it. All this time it was, at first it was stationary and then it started to move. It looked like it was either moving towards us, we were looking to the uh, southeast, or east-southeast I guess. It was moving towards us or it was going up, it was hard to tell. The guy taking uh, photographs with his camera on a tripod uh, has a photograph showing that the ring is, image is being smeared into a bunch of lines which proved it was moving. The guy who was um, videotaping it uh, recorded, of course, all the sounds of people talking and saying it's coming over, it's coming over, but then it just sort of faded out into the into the blackness. So it may just have gone upwards. But anyway, after thinking about it afterwards, I thought, well, you know, when I was looking at it with binoculars, I'm saying, why can't I see anything but the lights? If there's a structure up there holding these lights, why can't I see the structure? And I... Mm thinking about it afterwards, I decided, well, this glowing sky that would be backlighting anything that was within, say, four or 5,000 feet. And by the way, we did a triangulation, which wasn't too accurate, but probably would say that this object was three or four or 5,000 feet away, and if so, about 10 feet in diameter. I guessed that the reason I couldn't see any structure associated with it was it was on the other side of the glowing air. Mm. Glowing air was blocking any view of the, of the structure itself. If that were true, then it was several tens of size, feet in size. And mm. it's hard to imagine, you know, if somebody's going to put something like this together as a hoax, fly it over the city up in an area which was within the uh, landing area of uh, the Pensacola Air Force. Airport. Hmm. I don't know. I but anyway, I definitely saw this thing. I, I didn't call up the guys in white coats to come and take me away. Ho ho! <laughs> because there were thirty other people there. We had video and photographs and 
sound recordings and so on. The sound recording, by the way, picked up nothing. Hey, listen, we're just about out of time. Making any public appearances that we can mention? Uh, I'll be at Roswell. Okay. For the big party that's coming up. In July. I'll be at the X, the uh, X conference in September here in Gaithersburg. And there's yet another conference coming up at the end of uh, October in Anne Arundel County. So if anybody wants to contact me through the website and ask for information of where I'll be, uh, I can tell them. Dr. Bruce McAbee, thank you so much for joining us this week on The Paracast. Thank you, Dr. McAbee. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. 